Friends, uh, our Bible reading tonight is from uh, Genesis chapter 3, the whole chapter, and uh, the words should be up on the screen, but I'd also encourage you to, uh, to look it up in your own Bible, and I'd particularly encourage you to keep that open as we uh, work through this passage tonight. So a reading from Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your, make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. Dust you are and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand, and take also from the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden, to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim 
and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Amen. Friends, uh, earlier in this uh, Living Theology series, we were reminded of the absolute perfection of God. In Deuteronomy 32, it says, The Lord is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. And we've also seen earlier in this series that the universe that God created was made perfect. He made this world without sin, suffering or death, without fault of any kind. Genesis chapter 1 says that God saw all that he had made and it was very good. But my friends, if all of that is true, then, well, then we can't help but wonder about the reality we see in the world around us today. For even the most optimistic of us cannot deny that we live in a world that's full of problems. It's a world beset by conflict, corruption and exploitation, a world of bushfires, earthquakes and tsunamis. There's genocide and slavery, poverty and famine, disease and pandemic, pollution and extinction. Our planet is filled with crime, abuse, perversion and addiction. That's not to say that everything is as bad as it could be. Just last night I I attended a James Morrison concert and heard terrific music and we see amazing things around us in nature and we see incredible acts of kindness from people. And so there is still beauty alongside the ugliness But yet, it's always limited. Everything's infected. And we know that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. So how do we reconcile an almighty, loving God on the one hand with a suffering world on the other? And how do we explain this to others? For you know, this is one of the biggest objections to Christianity. Sir Richard Attenborough once said this, Creationists always instance hummingbirds or orchids, sunflowers and beautiful things. But I tend to think instead of a parasitic worm that is boring through the eye of a boy sitting on the bank of a river in West Africa that's going to make him blind. Are you telling me that the God you believe in, who you also say is an all-merciful God who cares for each one of us individually, Are you saying that God created this worm that can live in no other way than in an innocent child's eyeball? Because that doesn't seem to me to coincide with a God who is full of mercy. So what do you think? Can we say that the Lord is good and great when there's so much pain and evil in this world? How do we reconcile a perfect God with an imperfect world? Well, my friends, that's why we need a proper grasp of Genesis chapter 3. For in this incredibly crucial narrative, we uncover fundamental truths 
that undergird our understanding of our God and of ourselves and of our world. Here we discover why alongside hummingbirds and orchids, there are eye-destroying parasites. My friends, here in this chapter, we find the answer to the question, what went wrong? So we're going to divide it into three scenes, and the first of those, in verses 1 to 5, I've called temptation. The first thing that's obvious is that in Genesis 3 verse 1, there's a distinct change of mood. To this point, the the story has been positive and glorious. The Lord Almighty made a perfect world and a perfect couple, Adam and Eve. There's blessing and harmony between man and God, man and woman, man and creation. But now something changes and it all begins with a snake. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. This creature was particularly cunning and shrewd, not because of any inherent quality, but because of who it represented. For in Revelation chapter 12, we're told of that, of that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. We're reminded here that he isn't a rival deity, but he is a created being made by God, but yet a fallen being coming with evil intent. You see, to this point in the story, the Lord has given just one single command. In Genesis 2 verse 16, it says, The Lord commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. But now the serpent approaches the woman, disturbing the order of creation, saying to her, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? He creates distance, speaking not of the Lord Yahweh, their loving creator, but rather speaking simply of God. And he questions the command, did God really say? And he exaggerates the requirement, you must not eat from any tree in the garden. However, Eve sets him straight, doesn't she? We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. She reinforces the command, yet adds her own exaggeration. You must not touch it, something the Lord never said. But the devil quickly responds. He calls God a liar. You will not surely die. And he calls God a killjoy. A spoil sport. He says, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. His words are not untrue. God did know and their eyes were opened. In verse, we see in verse 7. And they did become like God and they did know good and evil. We see that in verse 22. But my friends, the problem was that the very thing that the Lord warned them would bring death 
the devil presented as attractive and wonderful. And so Eve was faced with enormous temptation. But isn't that how it still works today? Temptation begins when you're further from God, doesn't it? And then you question him. Did he really say? Did he really say it's wrong to get angry, to commit adultery, to get drunk, to be deceitful, to be selfish? And then there's the lie, isn't there? God doesn't really mind. It won't do any harm. And then enticement. It'll feel so good. It's just what you need to be happy. But what comes next? Well, the next scene is rebellion, verses 6 to 13. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Adam and Eve, they had known the Lord's richest blessings. And they knew he'd given them just one restriction with a warning. But when that snake put temptation before them, they did not hesitate to turn their backs on their loving God. For although they had so much fruit to choose from, from so many trees, they wanted this. They saw it was attractive. They saw it was tasty. They saw it could make them clever. And the course of history changed with these simple words. She took some and ate it. And instead of questioning Eve's actions, Adam weakly followed her straight into her sin. Then exactly as promised, the eyes of both of them were opened. They became enlightened. They became aware of something new. But what did they see when their eyes were opened? They saw their own nakedness. You see, my friends, the Lord told them that this was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the devil fooled them into thinking that to gain such knowledge was great. But perhaps it could have been if, like God, they could remain perfect. But how wrong they were. For you see, in that very act of eating the forbidden fruit, they proved their own imperfection. For in that act, they rebelled against the God who had made them, and they fell into sin for the very first time. But barely had the juice dried on their chins when they recognised their own nakedness, their own vulnerability, their own shame. We presume normally that the issue is their nakedness before each other, and that's partly the case. But the real issue is their nakedness before God. Their awful sinfulness exposed before the holiness of the Almighty. And so they make a pathetic attempt to cover themselves with fig leaves. But then verse 8 says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Up until now, they'd had a, a beautiful relationship. But how things had changed. For as the Lord approached, they cower in fear. But of course, you cannot hide from God. And so he called to the man, where are you? 
Adam replied, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. What a tragedy. They wanted so desperately to be wise, but they'd only become wise to their own foolishness, their own rebellion, and the fact that they could no longer appear in God's presence. But he replies to them, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Of course God knew what had happened. But he gives Adam an opportunity to explain, to admit, to repent. But the rebellion only multiplies. Adam responds, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Rather than confess, he passes the buck. In one fell swoop, he not only blames Eve for giving him the fruit, but he also blames God for giving him the woman. But what about Eve? Would she repent? Well, God asks her what she'd done, and she says, Well, the servant deceived me, and I ate. She too refused to own her actions, but instead blamed the snake. And thus we have a comprehensive picture of rebellion, one that we all know too well, don't we? The Lord makes his will so clear to us in his word, but yet we're so tempted to ignore his good commands, to do what he has forbidden, to indulge ourselves in sin, and far too often we give in, rebelling against our maker. We do exactly what we know we shouldn't, and drag others down with us. And then we feel shame, avoiding God, trying to hide our naked sin. Instead of owning our failure, we make excuses, blaming everyone else except for ourselves. How often have we seen it? How often have we done it? But then follows the third scene, verses 14 to 24. We've seen temptation, followed by rebellion, but now there is judgment. For the Lord, in his perfect holiness, he cannot tolerate the evil that's been done. He cannot let it go unpunished. When he said to them, you will certainly die, it wasn't a joke. And now he reveals what that actually meant. He begins with the serpent, who's told, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Snakes still crawl on their bellies, a reminder of the curse of sin. And the eating of dust, well, that's a symbol of defeat and of death. But there'd also be enmity between he and the woman and their offspring, an ongoing relationship of hostility. And we also see that today, don't we? The ongoing battle between snake and human with death often resulting on one side or the other. But then the Lord turns his attention to Eve, saying, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour you will give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To put it simply, she is afflicted in her most intimate relationships. The bearing of children now comes with suffering. The bond with husband now comes with tension. 
and how true that is. And then it's Adam's turn. And the Lord says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. The man is afflicted in his very fight for survival. Before this, he worked in the garden and took care of it, we were told. Work in itself is not the punishment. But the punishment is in the curse of the ground, resulting in painful toil, thorns and thistles, sweat on the brow. Labour became a struggle. And don't we know that in our own lives? Work could be such a pleasure, but yet it so rarely is. But furthermore, the Lord reveals that in the end, the threat of death will be fulfilled. For while humanity was not created to die, because of Adam and Eve's sin, their lives would now be cut short, returning to the ground, returning to the dust. So the Lord pronounces his judgment on the serpent, the woman and the man. The world is no longer very good, as it was in the beginning. There is no longer blessing and harmony between man and God. Man and woman, man and creation. But there is still more. Verses 22 to 24, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And here is the ultimate consequence of humanity's rebellion. Paradise is lost. Perfection is lost. Communion with the Lord is lost. Eternal life is lost. Sin enters the world, and now we pay the terrible price. But what's all this mean? Well, my friends, it means that when we look at this world and see trouble and suffering, we need to have a clear understanding of how this came about. Many will see these things and they will blame God. They will say he's either evil or he's impotent or both. And others, like Sir David Attenborough, will say that such misery actually proves there is no God. But what they fail to grasp is the fundamental message of Genesis chapter 3. The Lord reminds us that he is a loving and powerful God, perfect in all of his ways. And he has created a good world without sin or suffering or death. But it all changed when we, the human race, were tempted and rebelled. We took matters into our own hands. We made our own rules. We put ourselves first. And it's because of our sin and our rebellion 
that the world went wrong and hardship became part of our existence. My friends, God is not responsible for evil and suffering. We are. We're directly responsible for wars and for crime, for hatred and abuse. But even things like earthquakes and parasites, they're our fault. Because by our sin, we brought judgment, a curse upon the ground. And so we can reconcile a perfect God with an imperfect world. Because it's not he, but us who ruined it. But my friends, this passage also reminds us that we have a far deeper problem. For not only is there trouble in this world, but these troubles are a sign of something even worse. For the ultimate judgment is that we are destined for eternal death, totally cut off from the living God. And that's the whole point of this chapter, to, to tell us that because of our own sin, we cannot eat of the tree of life. We cannot enter paradise. We cannot dwell with the Lord. But doesn't that make it all the more amazing that throughout this chapter there are sprinklings of grace all over the place? For a start, think about the fact that in chapter 2, God said that eating the fruit would bring death. And so he could rightly have eradicated mankind immediately, but he didn't. He gave them time to live. On top of that, though their lives would be limited, God allowed procreation. And so life would continue from one generation to the next. That's why in verse 15 there's mention of the woman's offspring. In verse 16 there's mention of childbearing. In verse 20 it says, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. We should also think about verse 9. Although God allowed mankind to live, he could yet have turned his back and left us to our own devices. But he didn't. In love, he came looking, seeking, calling out to find them. And did you notice verse 24? Even though mankind was cut off from the tree of life, Yet we are told that that tree was not destroyed. The possibility of eternal life continued. If only there could be a way. And did you notice verse 21? Even though Adam and Eve were exposed in their nakedness, even though their own feeble effort to cover themselves had failed, God had a better solution. For it says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. The Lord himself covered their nakedness. And could these skins even hint at the shedding of blood and of sacrifice? But that then brings us to the most amazing verse of all. For in verse 15, in cursing the serpent... The Lord said that there would be enmity between him and the woman, between his offspring and hers. But then he says very specifically, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
the Lord declared that one day a single offspring of the woman would come to defeat evil once and for all, would crush Satan's head and destroy his power. But yet in the process of that, he himself would suffer as Satan struck his heel. Ah, oh, my friends, in these precious words, we see the very first hint of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. He is the reason for God's patience through all these generations. He is the one who came to seek and save the lost. He is the one who would reopen access to the tree of life and to the hope of eternity. He is the one who would finally cover our naked shame with his perfect righteousness, dying on the cross to conquer sin and death and hell. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So friends, while Genesis 3 is about the fall into sin and its dreadful consequences, a chapter telling us what went wrong, it's also a chapter about grace. For despite the fact that our first parents so grievously rebelled against God, and the fact that every single one of us do the same, and the fact that all of us deserve to be forever banished from his presence, there is yet such clear evidence of God's mercy. For already back then, he planned to send his own son, the second Adam, to die in our place. And as a result, all who believe in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. The troubles in this world are but a small taste of what we ultimately deserve. But yet we can be rescued by our Lord Jesus Christ. So friends, let's get real about the reason for evil and suffering that is around us. But may that also make us all the more eager to know and to share the solution that God has provided. And may we look forward to that glorious day when he will make all things new. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we recognise that when we look at this world around us that we see a lot of sadness and a lot of bad things going on. And Father, we know that there are times when people say to us, how can your good and mighty God allow these things to happen? Father, we thank you for revealing the truth to us in Genesis chapter 3. Father, we thank you for showing us that it was not you, but it was us who brought this curse upon the world. Father, we pray, please help us to know this. Help us to be able to be witnesses to this. Help us to be able to show others that it is not you who wanted this, but it was us through our sin. But Father, we thank you that in this chapter, this, this chapter of tragedy, there is also such hope. Father, we thank you that you did not give up on the people you had made. Father, we thank you that you have not given up on us. Father, we thank you that you sent the one 
who came to crush the, the devil's head and that he did that on the cross. Oh, Father, how we thank you for our Lord Jesus and that he has rescued us from all of this. Lord God Almighty, please help us to put all our trust in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.